Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. When sickness strikes, or you think of, you know, just the different calamities that can come somebody's way, and how even their position during those times, or perhaps their wealth, or whatever their successes might have been, they don't avail anything. But yet those are the things that people have confidence in. They're the things that people trust in. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Isaiah chapters 44 through 45. Now, here's Pastor Brian. So we're picking up in our Through the Bible study And we are in Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, chapter 44. So we've made our way through chapter 43. There are 66 chapters in Isaiah. And just a quick little background. Maybe you're coming in for the first time. Maybe you're not really familiar with Isaiah. But the text that we're looking at here through really beginning in Isaiah 40 on through chapter 55, these are prophetic words that Isaiah spoke for the people of Judah who would later go into captivity. So at the time he spoke them, uh, there was no captivity on the horizon. It was actually many, many decades into the future before the Babylonians would rise to power. They would come and they would conquer Judah. They would take the people captive into Babylon. They would be there for 70 years So these are prophetic words that Isaiah was given to encourage them when they found themselves in that particular situation. And so that's what we're looking at as we go through here and as I've explained before. And it's important to understand this because it can be a little tough trying to navigate these prophets, especially, well, all of them in a sense are kind of tough to navigate. I'm my personal Bible study right now. I'm in Zechariah. And what did I finish? Uh, I think I finished the eighth uh, chapter this morning. And, and even after many, many years of reading through and studying and even teaching, uh, sometimes I'm still like, wow, what in the world is that? You know, you really have to kind of think through some of this. So, so as we look at these passages, I want you to remember, just kind of keep this in mind, and this will help as we navigate it, that there was... Um, an application for the original hearers. There was a prophetic application to it that would come later in their future. And in the case of Judah, it would come, like I said, along with the Babylonian captivity, but also many of the things could be applied to the Roman era as well. But then there is also, especially in Isaiah, there's always the ultimate looking forward to the final fulfillment of these prophecies. And that's what we're a lot of times seeing, that these are prophecies about when God will finally fulfill all of his promises to Israel. So as we jump into chapter 44, we're going to see that these things pertain to them in the, in the Babylonian captivity, but we're going to see that they will stretch out beyond that as well. So with that in mind, Let's jump in. And so the Lord speaks, yet now 
Yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. So there's a lot of, it's interesting in these chapters, there's a lot of encouragement. God is comforting them. He's giving them promises. He's telling them that he's for them. And, but he's also explaining why they're in the predicament they're in because of their sin, because of their rebellion. He's also reminding them of the fact that they're under a judgment. So he, he kind of goes back and forth between those things. And so here we see there's a, this word of comfort. And, and then he says this, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground, I will pour my spirit on your descendants. Just a quick note, Jeshurun, it was a poetic way of referring to Israel or to Judah, more, more specifically to, to the whole nation. And you find it back in Deuteronomy twice. It's recorded in Deuteronomy in the, I think it's chapters 32 and 33. And the name means probably means anyway, the upright one. And so it's kind of God's ideal for Israel, that they would be this this upright people, this righteous people that would be his people. And so the, the term is used, again, sort of poetically for them. And here Isaiah uses it. But then notice in verse three, this again, we see the promise and, and the encouragement, the comfort, for I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground, I will pour my spirit on your descendants. So remember, for a people in captivity, these are really encouraging words. God is telling them that you, you have a future and you have a blessing coming in your future and not just for you, but for your descendants as well. So this would have been greatly encouraging to them. And so I will pour out my spirit and my blessing on your offspring, they will spring up among the grass like willows by the water courses. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. So in their future, there's gonna be such a restoration that the name of the Lord is going to be on the lips of all the people. They're gonna call themselves by the the name of Israel or the name of Jacob, or they're gonna say, I belong to the Lord. You know, as I was reading this over today, I was thinking about, you know, the early days here at uh, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, back in the time of the the Jesus people time, you know, the kind of the time of revival. And it was back in those days that there was a lot of this kind of thing happening. You know, there are a couple generations of kids that were born that were all given biblical names because they had all come to faith in uh, their parents had come to faith and they had children and they were naming them, you know, all of these biblical names and, you know, calling themselves after the names of the Lord and, you know, praise the Lord and, and, you know, the Lord is good and, and all of those kinds of things. They were, they were kind of part of that culture. And it was just a, like a welling up from within the hearts of the people, this excitement about being the people of God, this excitement about 
all that God had done. And, and those, those were good days. And that it just reminded me when I read here that that's kind of what we're talking about in the future for Israel. And so moving on, verse six, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me, there is no God. Remember in the New Testament, Jesus in the book of Revelation, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. He also says, I am the first and the last. The Alpha and the Omega are the the beginning and the ending of the Greek alphabet. And it's a way of really saying that I'm the eternal one. And the Lord says this here, I am the first, I am the last. This isn't the first time he said it. Beside me, there is no God. So God is claiming to be the only God. He's claiming to be the the one that was there in the beginning and the one that'll be there when everything is said and done. Now, something that I think is important to note, the Jehovah's Witnesses, I'm, I'm sure that you've probably encountered Jehovah's Witnesses at times, and, you know, one of the things that is a pet peeve for them, it's, I mean, it's probably their number one issue, is they do not believe that Jesus is equal with the Father. They believe that Jesus is a created being. And, of course, Jehovah, they say, is the, you know, he's the eternal God. Jesus is a, he's a God, they would say, a small g God who, you know, was created at a certain point. Here's a great way to address that particular issue with them. This sixth verse of Isaiah 44 is quoted by Jesus in Revelation 1.17. So in Revelation 1.17, Jesus says, I am the first and the last. And then if there's any doubt whatsoever about who is saying it, because there are a couple of places in Revelation where I've even had the opportunity over the years to point out to the Jehovah's Witnesses, look, the Lord says right here, he's the Alpha, the Omega. He's the first and the last. They say, oh, no, no, that's, that's, that's God the Father speaking there. That's not a reference to Jesus. Well, 117 is irrefutable because the Lord says, I am the first and the last. I am he who was dead and I am alive forevermore. So there's no question about who it is that's speaking there. One who is dead and is alive forevermore. That, of course, is Jesus Christ. But he says about himself, he says, I am the first and the last. So what he does is he takes the very way that God presents himself here in Isaiah and he applies it to himself. And remember here, it says, these are the words, or thus says the Lord. Thus says Yahweh, or the way the Jehovah's Witnesses would say it is Jehovah. So according to their reading of the name, which is more than likely incorrect, but be that as it may, the point here is that Yahweh is speaking. The Lord is speaking. He says, I am the first and the last. Jesus in Revelation 1.17 is speaking. He says, I am the first and the last. So he's identifying himself as the same God who spoke to the people through the prophet Isaiah. So just a little side note, a good thing to point out if you're in a conversation with Jehovah's Witnesses, this is one that will get them to think a little bit. And so, and 
who can proclaim God is speaking as I do, then let, let him declare it and set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. God speaking. Is there another God? Uh, No, there's not. I don't know any. And um, just take the Lord's word at it there. So for those who make an image, now he's going to go on and talk about the, so the contrast is between himself and the idols. And remember, Babylon was the center of idolatry, but the people of Judah were in captivity because of idolatry. So they were the, the servants of the true God, the living God, the God who made the heaven and the earth. God declares that over and over here in these chapters. He reminds them of, of who he is. And then he's always contrasting who he is with the gods of the nations. And, and those are the idols. And then, but he's, you know, he's reminding Israel, like, how is it that you've traded the worship of me, the true and the living God, for these idols that are nothing, these idols that are made of wood and that are made of stone and that are fashioned by a craftsman. How is it that you could exchange the worship of the true God for these gods? So as we go on here, God is really just showing the foolishness of idolatry. And so those who make an image, all of them are useless and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? Good question. Surely all of his companions would be ashamed and the workmen, they are mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith, these are the people who fashion the idols, a blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with hammers, and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. So God is kind of mocking them. So, you know, here's a person, the person making the idol can't even sustain himself. He's hungry, he's faint because of the hard work. Obviously, he's making the idol. If he's the maker of the idol, the idol is less than he is, and he's hungry and he's weak. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks out one with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with a compass and makes it like the figure of a man. You know, it's, it's almost like the Lord is saying, now think about this. Okay, so the, these, are the, these are the things you're worshiping. Let's go back through the process. How this image that you're bowing down to, this image that you're attributing your health to or your well-being to or your success to or your prosperity, let's think about this for a moment. Let's think about the process of how this thing came into existence. 
So he takes us back to the blacksmith and he takes us back to the craftsman. And like he says here, at one point, the craftsman is basically drawing a figure with chalk that he's then going to cut out. And this is going to become your God. So according to the beauty of a man that it may remain in the house, he cuts down cedars for himself. He takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn. For he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes it a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image. He falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half, he eats meat. He roasts to roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And here's the irony. The rest of it, he makes into a god. So the point that God's making here is how, how is it that the idolater is so blind to what they're actually doing. The, the very same wood that they use to cook their food and to warm themselves, they now turn into an idol and bow down and worship it and pledge themselves to it. It's like God is saying, how, how can this even be? This is so senseless. It's so mindless. It's so absurd. And it, and it really is true. Let's read a little bit further. He says, the rest of it he makes into a god, his carved image, he falls down before it and worshiping it, prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. They do not know nor understand for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see in their hearts so that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart nor is their knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread with its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? An abomination was a way of referring to the idol. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? You see, God is, again, he's being sarcastic here. He's, he's really mocking the whole process. Don't you understand what you're doing? He says, you're, you're falling down before a block of wood. And, you know, you think of um, the idolatry of the ancient peoples, it's extended to the present time. It, it's, nothing's changed. You can find cultures today where people do exactly what is being described here in Isaiah. Now, we might not be able to find any of these kinds of things here in the United States or maybe in most of, you know, Western culture, our idols are more sophisticated, but there are still places in the world today where you're going to find exactly what's going on here. And otherwise intelligent people can't seem to understand that they're just really worshiping a block of wood. But then otherwise intelligent people here in the more materialistic culture don't seem to be, un to be able to understand either that the things that they are worshiping, the things that they're living for, the things that they're putting all of their confidence in or their stock in, that these are just as unhelpful in a time of crisis, in a time of need. You know, you think of uh, when sickness strikes, you think of when somebody is laid out, or you think of, you know, just the different calamities that can come somebody's way. And 
how even their position during those times or perhaps their wealth or whatever their successes might have been, they don't avail anything. But yet those are the things that people have confidence in. They're the things that people trust in. And what is the explanation for that? Well, there's a blindness. And that's what the Lord is describing here, that there's a, there's a dullness. They can't even see the insanity of, of what they're doing. And so it is today. And we need the Spirit of God to open the eyes of a person. I needed that. You needed that. We all are guilty, probably, of in some way, shape, or form having gone through this type of a thing with our idols and, and yet not seeing the, the foolishness of it all. And then thank God, by his mercy, through his grace, uh, one day we began to realize how utterly foolish this was, how stupid it was. How, what am I, why am I giving myself to this? Why am I thinking that this is going to fulfill me or this is going to, in the end, save me? And because of that work of the Spirit, we're awakened to the reality of what we're doing and we turn from that. And that's called the grace of God. And thank God for it. You know, I I was thinking though about how during this time, there are people that are reevaluating. There are people that are asking themselves questions. There are people that are seeing that they're, the things that they've been putting their confidence in are, are not really able to sustain them in the midst of, of this kind of a reality or something similar to it. And it just, for some reason, it got me to thinking about, you know, just how so often we don't really think through things. We just sort of turn our brains off in a sense, and and we don't think through. But times like this, they cause us to pause and to think about things that we normally wouldn't think about. I mean, think, think about this. So Jesus said this, what would it profit a person to gain the whole world and lose their soul? Or what can a person give in exchange for their soul? So, so think about that for a moment. Think about, okay, what, what would it profit? What, what value would it be? I could get everything. I could get the whole world. I could have for a, a period of time, <laughs> however long it might be, maybe it'd be brief, maybe it would be a little bit longer. I Just the whole world, I could have it right at my fingertips. I could just do whatever I wanted. But... Then when it was over, it would be over and I would lose everything. I would lose everything. I would lose my soul forever. And that's what I would have exchanged my soul for. So I exchanged my eternal soul for a temporary experience of fulfillment or getting everything that I ever wanted. Now, would you really want to do that? This is what I was just thinking about this the other day. You know, if somebody could sit down and just reason through it and think, okay, wait, that, no, that doesn't sound like a good idea. I'm, yeah, so I get to everything. I get to gain the whole world and that's going to be great. But then I, I'm going to die and I'm going to, all of this is going to be taken. And then my soul is going to spend forever in outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth.
For the month of August, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled 15 New Testament Words of Life, a New Testament Theology for Real Life by Dr. Nijay Gupta. How can we understand some of the most important concepts in the Bible? And how can those concepts make a practical impact on our lives? In his book, 15 New Testament Words of Life, Dr. Nijay Gupta traces 15 words through the Bible that make an impact on how we live the Christian life. Words like righteousness, faith, and holiness. You'll learn their Old Testament background, discover their relevance during New Testament times, make connections with other passages in the Bible, and realize their practical impact for living life today. This book will help to bring theology to life. If you want to see how some of the most important theological themes in the Bible can come to life for you, we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. To order 15 New Testament Words of Life, a New Testament Theology for Real Life by Dr. Nijay Gupta. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you this book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Isaiah. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.